Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we trust you. We thank you. Your word is power. It is, it reveals your incredible ability to do whatever you want because when your word goes out, it will do exactly what you want it to do. And we trust that and pray that now as I preach your word that your spirit would fill, consume this room, consume me, speak through me um, to exalt Jesus Christ. And so for the sake of Jesus and for his glory, pray that you do a powerful work here in us. We trust you, we trust your word and ask that you would act in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I am a basketball coach, right, for like junior high boys, basketball. My son's on the team. Uh, Christian and I coach the team together. And coaching basketball, uh, you know, I, I don't have to play to coach. So I go to practice. We practice four times a week. I go to practice, and, and during practice, you know, I'm... I'm I'll go in like my jeans and a hoodie, whatever. I'm not there to like shoot hoops and play with the kids and get all sweaty. Uh, but I, so I'll be wearing like my, just my regular street shoes, you know, my sneakers or like running shoes essentially. And the thing is though that like during practice, there's a lot of things these kids need to know how to do. And so I have to get the ball, go on the court, run around and show them how to do it. And then I, you know, I get really excited during practice and then sometimes I'm like, you know what, just here, you go on the side, I'll show you what I want done, and then I'll, I'll do it for them. And all of a sudden, during practice, I'm playing. And because I'm playing, I'm sweating. And because I'm sweating, my clothes get sweaty. And my shoes get sweaty, okay? So what happens when your shoes get sweaty? <laughs> they, start to sm they start to smell. All right, so I'm going to let you in. I mean, I know this is a little maybe too personal about me, okay? But... My shoes are starting to get stinky, and I didn't know it till the other day, because I don't know if you guys know this about shoes, but basketball shoes are made of a harder material, um, polyurethane. I know all this because I used to work at Finish Line when I was like a teenager, and we had to learn everything there is to know about a shoe, so and about different kinds of shoes. Running shoes are made of out of ethyl vinyl acetate. Put that in your notes, um, <laughs> EVA for short, and that material is softer and more absorptive, so. You know, if you sweat into your running shoes, they're going to stink a lot quicker than basketball shoes because it's made of a harder material. It's not as absorptive. So I'm not wearing basketball shoes. I'm wearing running shoes. Out there running around with kids, sweating up my shoes, getting them all stinky. I didn't know that was happening until the other day. Sitting in my office, working on my sermon. And when I like to work on my sermons, I like to kick my shoes off, chill, sit on my nice comfortable couch in the corner of my office, and just type away, and then I put my computer down, and I went up, and I went over to my desk and to do something else, and I came back over to where my shoes were sitting next to my chair, and it hit me like a huge waff in the face, and I was like, oh, my shoes smell terrible. I've been sweating in them. Now, here's the interesting thing. The moment I caught a whiff of, is this gross? Are you guys gross out of this? Are you okay with this? Okay, good. <laughs> you don't really get a choice, but I was just wondering. Uh, the moment I get that whiff, I also get a whiff of something else, my coffee. So I've got a coffee sitting next to my chair as well. So I've got stinky shoes and the sweet, sweet aroma of my coffee. Now, one thing you need to know about me and coffee is I like my coffee like I like my wife. <laughs> White, sweet, and hot, okay? So my coffee is like 
I put so much creamer in my coffee, okay? Like it's so, it's all I can smell is creamer. So I've got this, these competing scents in my head of the stinky shoe <laughs> and this wonderful scent of coffee and I can feel my brain battling this experience like, ah, ew, ah, ew. And it was at that very moment, literally, as I'm standing there, and, 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 and to be honest with you, at the time I was thinking, I need a good illustration to start the sermon, and I couldn't think of one. I was like, I'm not even going to have one. I'm just going to jump right into the text. And then this happened in the middle of my sermon writing, and I thought, this is a great, great illustration of what's happening in this text. And so something that God is able to do that we are not able to do, in fact, you know what else can do this is dogs. Dogs can smell two things simultaneously and comprehend them and experience them at the same time. You could put a sweet rose at the bottom of a huge pile of dirty laundry and the dog can smell the dirty laundry and the rose underneath at the same time and know what's in there. Humans, we can't do that. We get one experience at a time. So I'm sitting there going, ugh, stinky shoes, mmm, good coffee, right? So we have to go back and forth. God, like a dog... <laughs> Can, 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 can smell all the things. And, and what I mean is that the pleasant aroma of that coffee is like our righteousness to God. He smells and goes, oh, that smells delicious. And then our sin is like the stinky shoes that we sweat up and get all gross and dirty and it's putrid and it, like, it, it taints the aroma of our righteousness. So to human beings, it's, it's hard for us to, to, to see both. Because just like the coffee and the shoes, we can only smell one at a time. We can only see one at a time. We can see the sin. We can smell the sin and go, ooh, you're gross. Or we can smell the righteous and go, oh, you're good. But if we see sin, oh, no, you're not good anymore. Now you're bad. And God doesn't see things that way. Because God can sniff through it. He can smell the putrid stank of our sin and pierce through that sinfulness, that stank, to, to smell in us the pleasant aroma of righteousness that Christ has given us. That's what reconciliation does. That's what reconciliation does for us, is even though we give off odors sometimes because we sin, God is aware of the odor, he can smell it, but he can pierce through it and say, I still smell, I still see the righteousness of Christ in you. And that truth is vitally important, vitally important to what Paul teaches us here about reconciliation. In the previous text, verse 20, that gave us insight into just this idea of reconciliation, but now I, Paul goes a little deeper into the meaning and some of the background to why reconciliation is needed. And then Paul ends this text with a, I think, a pretty harsh reality. But though it's harsh, for genuine believers, for true believers, this is a, a great encouragement. So we're in verse 21, Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And Paul writes, And you, who once were alienated and hostile, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So that's... He's about to talk about reconciliation, but first he talks about what reconciliation or why reconciliation was required because we were once alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. So Paul gives us a gruesome look into who we were, or who we are, without Christ 
which is who we were before we were saved by grace and faith in Christ. So there are three things that Paul identifies about our previous status without Christ. Okay, number one, without Christ, we were alienated. Or you could say like estranged or isolated. So we were alienated. That's what Paul says in verse 21. Alienated from what? That's the question. And Paul gives us a little more detail about our previous alienation in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, which says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. We were alienated from God. That's what we were alienated from, him. Meaning we were not recipients of God's promises that come with being in a covenant with God like Israel had in their covenant with God. Israel's covenant with God came with promises in that covenant. And now in the new covenant in Christ, those who are in Christ come with new promises. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 8, it says that they're better promises and therefore it's a better covenant than the previous covenant. But without Christ, you're alienated from the covenant. You're alienated from God, which means you're alienated from the promises. And the result of this alienation, or the no promises and the no covenant relationship with God, is that we are left without hope. That's what Ephesians 2.12 says. Because of this alienation, we are having no hope and without God in the world. No hope of a promise fulfilled for us. No hope of eternal life. And no hope of any blessings that come with being in a covenant relationship with God. So alienation leaves us hopeless. Number two, without Christ, we were hostile in mind. Now Romans 8-7 gives us a little more detail about this hostility that we had it says for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to god for it does not submit to god's law indeed it cannot meaning it cannot submit to god's law those who are in the flesh cannot please god meaning unbelievers who are in the flesh and therefore hostile to God, cannot please God. And they cannot submit to God's law. They can't do it. It's impossible to do without Christ. Prior to our salvation, our mind was set only on the flesh. Without the Spirit of God dwelling in you, it's impossible to set your mind on the Spirit or on the life in the Spirit or on God or on the law of God or on Christ or on His Word because you don't believe. So even if you're not a believer and you can think about those things or, or, or in a sense, you know, actually set your mind on the Bible or set your mind on something about God, your life, your heart, your soul, your devotion is still to the flesh if you don't believe, if you're not, if you don't have faith in Christ. So without Christ, we are left with hostility in our mind to God and to the things of God. And we were in total and complete and full rebellion to God. So we were alienated and thus hopeless, which is a rather passive position to be in. But having a hostile mind shows not just that we were passively hopeless, but the hostile mind shows that we were actively at war with God opposing anything having to do with him. 
And number three, without Christ, we were doing evil deeds. Now, you might be thinking, I really wasn't doing evil deeds. I mean, I wasn't like, like Hitler is evil, okay? Evil is like murderers. And you're probably thinking to yourself like, I wasn't that bad of a person before I got saved. I wasn't like running around punching babies and pushing old people over and like stealing money and committing crimes. I was just a good person. I was a good person. I just wasn't saved. That's all. The reality is that every single thought that went through your mind and every single action that you ever took without being in Christ was, by definition, an evil deed. We just read this truth in Romans 8, 7. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If your action does not please, well, what pleases God? Righteousness. You can't do any righteousness without Christ. Even if you did something good that we would say that's a good thing, it's not righteous according to God because it lacks Christ. So you can't do righteousness without Christ, which means the only thing you can do is the opposite of righteousness, and that is sin, and sin is evil. We can only do evil without Christ. Or Hebrews 11.6 says this verse, like, says it like this, without faith is impossible to please God. So even the thoughts or actions that we took as unbelievers that most people would say are good, were actually evil because they were done without Christ. They were done in the flesh. And if you as an unbeliever helped your neighbor shovel the driveway, that was evil. (laughs) I know, it's like, what? How can you call that evil? That's a good thing. And it is a good thing. It really is because anybody in the world, Christian or non-Christian, doesn't matter. If you saw your neighbor that you know is not a believer, shoveling your driveway, would you go out there and be like, stop your evil work? No, you'd be like, dude, thank you. That was so nice of you. I really appreciate you. You're such a good neighbor. Thank you, right? You would still show appreciation because our standards are very different from God's. And we would look at that behavior and say, the behavior in and of itself is a good deed, but God's standard is perfection. And that person, no matter how many good deeds they do, do not measure up to perfection. They need Christ to measure up to perfection. So without Christ, they don't meet the standard of perfection. So everything they do falls short. And God says, it's just all evil. Everything you do is done in the flesh. It's just not good enough. You have to have Christ. Meaning God is still more pleased in the believer while they're cussing. Just picking a random sin, cussing. A believer who's cussing. God's more pleased in a believer who is cussing than in the unbeliever while they're helping. Because the unbeliever is acting according to the flesh, which is 100% stained by imperfection, while the believer, though sinning, is covered by the perfection of Jesus and is therefore pleasing to God. So their behavior, that action of the believer cussing, is not a pleasure to God. It's still sin. He can still smell the stinky shoe. You know, Ugh, stop cussing. It's like sweaty socks. Get it out of my face. Well, he still pierces through that scent and goes, but you, I can still smell the sweet coffee. I still smell Christ in you. And it's, you are still a pleasure to me. That thing you're doing, 
I don't like it, but you are still a pleasure to me. The, the unbeliever, I can smell the deed, and the deed is good, but you are not, because you're imperfect and you don't have Christ. That's who we are before our faith is in Christ. We are alienated from God. We are actively hostile toward God, at war with him, opposing everything about him, even though we maybe didn't realize it or wouldn't have admitted it, that's where we were, and everything we did was evil. (laughs) So we had no God, we were hopeless without God, alienated from God, at war with God, doing only evil. That's the bad news. The good news comes in verse 22. You... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes our entire situation and scenario. He takes the alienated, the isolated, the estranged, the the enemy of God, those who are hostile, actively fighting against God, rejecting the truth, rejecting the reality of God that is present in all of creation and suppressing the truth about who God is and his reality and the gospel. Say no to Jesus. Say no to righteousness. Choosing sin, living in the flesh, can't do anything that's pleasing to God and only performing acts of evil and things that are sin. And even if we do the little bit of good things here and there, everything about us is stained and permeated with the putrid scent of our wickedness. That is who we are without Christ. And then Jesus swoops in and says, and I have now reconciled you to God in my body through my death. Meaning he has taken our hostility and changed it to friendship. Reconciliation means that, that, that he makes things right. He restores that relationship. So his reconciliation righted all of our wrongs. He has made us, aliens to God, become his children. He has made us who were hostile to God now adore him and love him and serve him and submit to him. And he has made us who were purely evil, righteous and good and holy by his blood that cleanses us from our sins. And he performed this reconciliation for us with a purpose in mind. And the purpose is expressed in verse 22. The purpose of the reconciliation is this. Verse 22, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Jesus reconciles us, makes us right, cleanses us of our sin, makes us holy, so that he could present us, the church, to himself as perfect. Nothing else will do for the Lord. Nothing else would would fit him except perfection. So he has to perfect his bride. But there's this weird idea in the Bible that's always talked about, that's always expressed, that Jesus will present us to himself. Have you ever done that? You ever like went to the store, bought a gift, took it home, wrapped it up, sat on the table and went, wow, what a beautifully wrapped present. And then ripped it open like, oh, thank you, myself. Like, it makes no sense, right? It's just so, why, why would you like give yourself this gift or present it to yourself? It's kind of a weird idea. 
And I think the only way that we can really understand this idea of Jesus you, doing something to the church in this time period in your life so that he could present you to himself is to understand the concept of marriage. So marriage is a great picture of this reality. In Revelation 19.9, the angel told John to write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know what that verse means? Blessed are those who are truly his bride. That's what that means. Because in Matthew 22, Jesus says, many are called, few are chosen. Many people hear the gospel message. Many people hear the truth. And I think a lot of people would say, oh yeah, I believe that. And maybe they're not genuinely saved. But few are chosen. That's Matthew 22, 14, I believe. And Jesus is talking about the marriage supper. That there's going to be a lot of people who, are, set, who are, are told, come to the feast. Come to the feast. The king has called you to come to the wedding feast. And Jesus says, many hear the call. Only a few are actually chosen to be there. And so what John is saying in Revelation 19.9 is that those who get that invite, those who are the chosen, are blessed. And in order to understand this idea of the marriage supper and the marriage and the wedding and the feast, we have to understand Jewish marriages. Jewish marriages in the first century are an analogy of our marriage to Christ. Our marriages today are an analogy of our marriage to Christ. He is the husband, we are the bride. Christ is the bridegroom, we are the bride. In Jewish marriages, the bridegroom and the bride would become betrothed. Similar to being engaged like today, but being betrothed was much more official than engagement is today. Once you were betrothed, your marriage was essentially guaranteed. And to break off the betrothal or the marriage during betrothal would require a divorce. Whereas with engagements today, you just like, I don't like you anymore. Let's break up. And you don't get married. That's it. No divorce, just break up. So it's a little different than engagement, but it's similar in that it's a waiting period prior to the actual uh, commencement of the marriage in the wedding. And also during the betrothal period is something that happened in, in, Jewish, mar in Jewish marriages that is very similar to what we are experiencing with Christ right now. The husband would leave his bride during the betrothal period and go prepare his house for his soon-to-be wife to enter that house after the wedding, which is exactly what Christ is doing for us now. So those, those details are important because our current status with Jesus as his bridegroom is that we are in that betrothal period today, meaning he is currently our husband, and the wedding feast that is to come, is, is, is in the future, is that finalization of our marriage to him. So unlike the engagement that we experience in, in today's culture, we cannot break up with Jesus and he cannot leave us. And like the betrothal period, we are not physically with our husband now because he is off preparing a home for us uh, that we will enter after the wedding. And the wedding feast that you would be blessed to be invited to is promised for us later and is a celebration of the fruition of his salvation, of us becoming his bride in completion at the wedding. So all this marriage talk, right, 
is important because Paul talks about marriage between a man and a woman in Ephesians 5. And he, and he makes an analogy of the husband and wife to Christ and the church. And I think most of you know that, right? That you know, your marriage with your spouse is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Jesus' relationship to his church. In Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, Paul says this about our responsibility, about the responsibility of a husband, which to the church would be the responsibility of Christ to us. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her. How? Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. For what purpose? So that he might, listen to these words. Remember, here we see it again. Jesus doing this, giving himself a present thing. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So notice what the husband's supposed to do to their wives. Okay, so a little side note. Husbands, this is how you're supposed to treat your wives. Sanctify them with the word of God so that they can, so that you can present your wife to Christ in splendor without spot or wrinkle so that she would be holy and without blemish. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing to the bride today, to the church today. Today, we are in the process that we call sanctification. We are being sanctified by Christ. We are spiritually growing at the hand of Jesus by the work of the Spirit at the will of the Father. That is what we are in right now. This betrothal period, as our husband is away preparing for us a place, and we are waiting as the bride for the day when our husband comes back to get us and take us to the wedding so we can finally, you know, finally finalize the, the marriage that we have with him, as we're waiting, he's working on us. Just like a husband does with his wife in this life. Sanctifying us so that when he comes back, he could swoop in and scoop up his bride and present us to himself and say, perfect. Because nothing else will do for Jesus. We have to be perfect, which means he has to sanctify us. So everything you experience in life, all the things you're going through as a believer is a process of sanctification that Jesus is doing and working on you. And he is be, he's making you like himself, perfect. He's perfecting you day by day. Doesn't feel like it, does it? But it's happening because he has to scoop up his bride and present to himself nothing but perfection. And he has to sanctify us. He has to sanctify us so that he can present his bride, his church, to himself as this verse says, perfect and holy and blameless and without blemish. That is the purpose of this betrothal period that we have on this earth before he completes the end of time and we have this wedding feast with him. Now, I think all of that is beautiful. And all of that happens because Jesus reconciled us. We don't get sanctified unless we're reconciled. And sanctification doesn't produce perfection unless we're reconciled. And perfection doesn't culminate in this wonderful day at a wedding and a wedding feast where we celebrate our marriage to the Lamb forever. None of that happens if he doesn't go and reconcile us. 
if he doesn't first take the alienated and the estranged and the hostile in mind and the evildoers and reconcile them to God in Christ. It doesn't work if he doesn't call a few to the wedding. And I think that that whole reality that we would be called and chosen Right? Ephesians chapter 1, that, he's called, that he chose us before the foundation of the world and in love he predestined us for salvation in him. That, is, that, that chosen reality about who we are, that we are called and chosen to the wedding feast of the Lamb and reconciled in that choosing to, to, to have Christ, to be sanctified in Christ and to look forward to the hope. Remember, we were alienated and hopeless and now in the reconciliation of Christ, now we have hope, a certainty. And Romans 8 says hope is a certainty and we wait for it with patience for that hope of that wedding feast one day. That's what we look forward to and all of that is a beautiful reality. Isn't that wonderful? That I, I think that like we don't deserve it. I mean, if you think about what Paul just described us as, purely evil, hating God, at war with God, and alienated from God, we don't deserve any of this reconciliation. We don't deserve the sanctification. We don't deserve the perfection. We don't deserve to be the bride. We don't deserve to get the perfect husband. We don't, get to be, we don't deserve to get to be perfected by our husband so we can be perfect with our husband forever. We don't, get, we don't deserve any of that. And yet he gives it to us. And here's what the church does with that. They take that and go, ooh, I like this. I am going to hold on to this hope. I'm going to keep this truth. I'm going to love this idea that I am saved and I'm going to heaven. And my preacher told me that once you're saved, you're always saved. So I can't lose this salvation. I love it. I'm grateful for it. And I'm really excited about it. And I'm going to live out this salvation for like, you know, as long as I can, but then the fire starts to fade and we get back into the rut of old habits that are sinful habits and we stop loving this gospel and we start loving the world. We start loving our old alienation. We start loving our old hostile mind. We start loving our old evil deeds and we return to them. And then you go to church and you're told, oh, don't return to them. We're like, oh, yeah, 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 that's right. Don't return to them. Gospel, gospel, gospel. But so many people take that gospel truth and they go, oh yeah, I love this. I, I love it, I love it, I love it. And then they just don't live it, you know? And they just kind of like, the whole, this whole gospel truth is, is predicated on grace, on the idea that I'm not good enough, but that's okay, Jesus is. So I can kind of just keep doing what I want because grace Covers my sin. I'm already saved. I can't lose my salvation. So grace covers me. I can just kind of live however I want. I definitely feel bad about it sometimes. But really, I just kind of want to keep sinning. And we don't talk to ourselves that way. We're not like, yeah, I really want to keep sinning. We're like, no, I don't want to. But we do, and we return to it over and over and over again. And so this beautiful reality of reconciliation that has given us, taken us from alienation to friends, and taken hostility to love and brought evil deeds into righteousness gets tainted by our abuse of grace. And that is why we have verse 23. 
Paul says that all of this beauty and sanctification and the wedding feast and this perfection and this glory, all of this is yours, verse 23, if, if, that is a huge word in the Bible. That word if indicates a conditional statement. If the bride is unfaithful during the betrothal period, then the husband knows that her heart was never set on him in the first place. So what happens then? Well, in the first century, in the actual betrothal period, they would divorce the, the unfaithful woman. But that'd have to be a divorce. Well, what do we know about the gospel? Jesus can't divorce his genuine believers. He can't divorce his true believers. And we can't leave. We can't, he can't leave us and he can't let us go if we are truly his bride. In Matthew 25, though, Jesus says that he will separate the sheep from the goats, meaning there are goats in the sheep pen, which is the church, the bride, and they don't belong there. They look like they belong there. They kind of act like they belong there. They're a little different, and you can tell by their fruit that they don't belong there. And how do we know they don't belong there? Because Jesus says in Matthew 22, 11, they had no wedding garment they're not wearing, Revelation 19, the wedding gown of Christ, the righteous gown, the white gown that genuine believers get. Meaning, they were not actually saved. So how do we know who's actually saved? Well, first of all, I think ultimately only God really knows, right? But we were given the Spirit of God that in Galatians 2 says that we can, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 2 says that we are capable of discerning, capable of discerning good from evil, right from wrong, righteousness and sinfulness. We have the ability to judge. Now, how many times have you heard people say, don't judge me? The Bible says, do not judge. Have you ever heard that, right? I mean, I have heard that argument a thousand times from a thousand different people. Don't judge, don't judge, don't judge. The only time that Jesus talks about not judging in Matthew 7, what he's saying is don't condemn. Don't make your judgment a condemnation. You don't have the right to say you're going to hell because you're not the judge who slams the gavel and says convicted sinner going to hell. You don't have that authority. But Jesus does tell us, and Paul says it in other places too, to judge with right judgment. So there's a difference between judging with condemnation and judging with discernment. We don't get to condemn people and say, you're not saved, because we don't know. But we do get to judge people's behavior and actions and thoughts and the things that they do and evaluate their fruit and discern what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is not. We have the authority and the right and the responsibility to judge people. So don't let people tell you that you can't judge them. When people tell you don't judge me, what they're really saying is stop making me feel convicted about my sin. Because that's really what they're hearing is conviction of sin. Now how you do it matters, have tact, okay? And that's ultimately what people hate is people come storming at them like, ah, you're evil. And they're like, don't judge me because they don't like the way you're approaching them. But that's a side point. The real point here is that we are supposed to judge. We are supposed to discern. We are supposed to evaluate the fruit of believers. And as your pastor, as your shepherd, I have to. It's my responsibility, which is why I preached the sermon I preached last Sunday, because I evaluated the sheep 
and said, we have a serious problem right here. And because of that problem, I had to address it. Okay? I had to take judgment and discernment about what was going on and give an evaluation and share it with you. If you weren't here last week and didn't listen to that sermon, go back and listen to it. I know it's long. Deal with it. <laughs> it, it it's, I think it's probably the most important sermon I've preached in the last year. Okay. My point is that how do we know who's really saved? Only God really knows. But we can discern. We can, we can make evaluation based on the evidence of fruit. Okay? But Paul offers this warning. You get all these beautiful and wonderful benefits of being the bride of Christ at the, and having the wedding feast and the perfection and the glory. Colossians 1.23 If, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This is the condition. You are truly his bride if you continue in the faith. Meaning, if you do not continue in the faith, you are not truly his bride. You are not reconciled. You are still alienated. You are still hostile in mind to God, and you are still purely evil in your deeds. Meaning, your life is a constant effort to live out the genuineness of your heart for Christ, which will always be revealed in obedience. Meaning, once you're genuinely saved, your entire life is a process of learning how to obey better and better as a form of validation for your salvation. Now, I'm thinking some of you might be going, hmm, that, that smells a little bit like legalism. It smells a little bit like I have to be good to be saved, right? Which is not the gospel. This is not legalism. True believers are truly being sanctified. That means that true believers are not yet perfect. So in this betrothal period, we are imperfect yet being perfected, which means we're going to sin we're going to fall and we're going to fail every day. And Jesus knows, he knows the heart of his bride, his true bride, and that the heart of his true bride does not say, genuine believers do not say, oh well, I sinned, he knows my heart, I'm covered by grace, it doesn't matter. That's not the response of his genuine bride. Rather, the heart of his true bride is more like Psalm 51, which says, you've broken me, now create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. True believers know their sin. They loathe their sin. They respond to sin with repentance, and they pursue Jesus as a solution to their sin. Their response to their sin in the betrothal period, in the sanctifying process, is to run to Christ. Now, sometimes the true believer doesn't run to Christ. Sometimes they don't, and they're still true believers. So I am not, I am not creating 
a checklist, because this is who we are as people. We like, we want a nice cut out cookie cutter, give me a perfect form on a piece of paper that tells me exactly what a believer does and doesn't do in exactly in a certain situations and circumstances. So I can take this piece of paper, set it down, watch someone's life, fill out the evaluation based on this form that you've given me, and then I can determine if they're saved or not. It's just not that simple. Life is way messier than that. The process of sanctification and spiritual growth is a journey and it's weird and it's different for everybody. So I'm not saying that like if you sin and then don't immediately repent, you're not a genuine believer. That's not what I'm saying. But if you sin and don't repent and then sin again and don't repent and continue to practice this habit of sin and continue to choose not to repent and just claim, well, grace, well, grace, 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 I'm gonna go, you're not saved. That's not how... People who love Jesus behave because people who love Jesus obey him. And when they don't, that hurts them and they want to obey him. And eventually, at some point, the Spirit is going to do enough conviction that draws you back into obedience. So, this is Paul's point. That genuine believers are genuine believers if they continue in the faith. So the conditional statement in Colossians 1.23 does not mean be good and then you get to stay saved. That's legalism. That's earning your salvation. That's not biblical. It's not the gospel. The conditional statement in Colossians 1.23 is this. During this betrothal period, while you're waiting for your husband to return, do not lose hope. He's coming back. Stay faithful. Cling to the gospel. If you do, he will take you as his bride. If you don't, that reveals that you were never his bride in the first place. So, the question then is, how do we stay faithful? And Paul tells us in verse 23 how to do it. Three things. Be stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So how are we to be stable, steadfast, and not shift from the hope of the gospel? Ultimately, the answer is cling to Jesus. But I always struggle with that idea of clinging to Jesus. I know what it means, like, you know, uh, metaphysically and emotionally and spiritually, like clinging to Jesus, like, you know, I want my heart and my thoughts and my ideas to cling to Jesus. I cling to Jesus by, like, doing certain actions, like, um, you know, reading the Bible and studying the Word and, and, and um, doing discipleship and, and praying and things like that. So, like, I, I get that idea, but the idea of clinging is such a physical concept. I, like, can't wrap my mind around clinging to Jesus because he's just not here right now. Like, telling a betrothed woman, uh, just cling to your husband. She's like, he's in a different place. How do I cling to him? And we're just kind of left going, what is, how, how, how do I cling to him? What do I do? I think we cling to Jesus, there's many ways. I think one really important way is we cling to Jesus by clinging to his bride. The other people who are Christians also are also his bride. Meaning one of the best ways to stay stable, steadfast, and not shifting is by being around people who are stable, steadfast, and not shifting. If I took one of you and put you right up here with me, and I said, okay, I'm going to push you over. Do you think that I could push you over? Probably. Even if you tried to resist and you put your leg back and you really like, you know, I hear it, I'm ready to resist your push, I could still shift you. 
I might not be able to knock you over, but as a grown man, I'm pretty sure I could put enough you know, power behind it to at least get you to move, to shift, to become a little unstable. And you're by yourself, so if you are doing one of these, you got your leg back and one leg forward, I'd probably just sweep your front leg and then push you down, right? I could make you fall one way or another, right? You're by yourself, you're standing there alone, good luck. One-on-one, that's a tough battle. But if you are surrounded by 20 people, and you are in the middle of those 20 people, and you said, now push me over, <laughs> I won't even get to you, let alone be able to push you over. I'd have to push 20 people over in one, in one push. That's impossible. You're protected with the bride of Christ. That's why we exist together, to serve each other, to bless each other, to support each other. The church is here to help you. God's people are here to help you. The bride, cling to the bride. God's other people are the bride, so cling to them as a means to cling to Jesus. And we will help each other learn other ways to cling to Jesus. We will help each other endure the betrothal period and all of its difficulties. All the hardships that come with sanctification, that's what the church is for. To support each other and help each other endure those things. We'll remind each other of our hope when we're feeling hopeless. We'll help each other stand when we're feeling weary and apathetic. We'll encourage each other with love and service. And, we'll be, and, and by clinging to Jesus and, and clinging to his bride and clinging to the church, you will get the word, you will get prayer, you'll get support and love and help and care and rebuke and discipline and compassion and encouragement. That's why we're here, for each other. This is not a solo act. You were never meant to do this on your own. Families that tell me that since COVID they haven't gone to church and they're like, I do church at home. No, you do not. Because church at home doesn't exist when you're by yourself. That's not church. Because that is just you at home watching a sermon with your family. So what makes this church? That we're in a building? No. That God's people are together. That's what makes it the church. So you're not doing church at home. You're watching a sermon at home. It's better than not watching a sermon at home. But it's not being involved in the bride and in the body. You're not getting the support and the love and the word and the help and the care and the rebuke and the dis discipline and the compassion and the encouragement that you need. You're not getting fed and you're not serving. You're not giving. You're not praying for others. You're not talking to people. You're not building relationships. And you guys are all here, so you're obviously not doing home church, right? So I'm preaching to the choir. I get that. Okay, but this idea that we don't need each other is insane. Like, we're literally going to spend the rest of our eternity together. Eternity together. Are there believers that you know that you have in your life that you're like, man, I can't wait till that person moves or goes to a different church? <laughs> Do you ever have that feeling about another Christian? I think God has built a house, Jesus has built a house in heaven 
and it's right ne- your house is right next to theirs. I, th- I, think, I think he's going to show you the beauty of reconciliation, the power of the reconciliation that he has provided for you through his blood, that his blood is thicker than our blood, that his blood that reconciles us to him and to each other is thicker than any conflict you have. And you're going to spend eternity sharing rooms with that person. And you're going to love it. And you're going to love them. Why don't we practice now? Why do we wait? Why do we live in this unreconciled status that we have with other Christians? Why do we dislike the things? I mean, not saying that we should love everything that another believer does because there are things that believers do that we all need to be corrected on. But serve that Christian in reconciliation by either praying for them or serving them or asking how you can help or giving to them or even rebuking them if that's what they need or, or, or getting some, some advice from a trusted leader or elder on how to serve and love that person who you're struggling to love? Why don't we ever practice those disciplines? And so we're like, ugh. And then we tell other people, oh my gosh, you know what they did the other day? They were like, That's not reconciliation. You think Jesus is up there going, oh, Father, did you see what Mark did? Oh my gosh, he acts like he loves you. He didn't even love you. Do you see what he did? He's such a, such a wannabe, such a faker. Oh, I can't even stand that guy. And then I'm like, Jesus, like, oh, yeah, Mark, what do you need, buddy? Like, he's so fake. You think Jesus behaves that way? No, why do we? Because we don't really get the reconciliation. We don't really understand the reconciliation that he's given us. So what I'm telling you is, if you want to cling to Jesus, if you want to be the bride that clings to Christ while he is absent and until he returns, and you really want to experience the beauty of reconciliation in the gospel and with each other, you have to be at church. And I don't just mean Sunday mornings, I certainly mean Sunday mornings, services, but in addition to that, you have to be a part of the church. Communicate with the body, serve one another, get involved in ministry, get involved in a life group, give to the church, sacrifice for one another, cling to each other, and by doing so, we'll cling to our husband, Jesus. And in doing so, we validate our faith in him with obedience to him. Because that's what's gonna happen when you cling to the church. Struggle with obedience. Obedience is the means by which we validate our belief in the gospel. Not as a means to stay saved, but as a means to say, I, this is who I am. I am a new creation in Christ. I love to obey and I want to obey and I won't make excuses for disobedience anymore because those excuses are out the window when Jesus reconciled me through his blood. So no, I no longer claim grace, grace, grace when I choose to sin. Instead, I will kill sin. I will make war with sin. I will defeat sin with the blood of Christ. Not through my actions, but my actions will be obedience in response to the blood of Christ that now flows through my veins. And I'm going to help others do it by clinging to the bride of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We we cannot do this alone. We, We try so many times to do this kind of stuff alone. We just can't. So we thank you. Thank you for the gift that is the church, that the church is part of the completion of your project in your own glory. And so help us to add to the magnification and exaltation of your glory by being so, so, so clingy to the church, by serving and loving one another as a means to cling to you. Help us 
to walk and live in obedience and to continue in faith as a means to validate this gospel that we have been reconciled by your blood. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of your gospel and for the gift that it is and pray that we'd walk faithfully in it by your power and by your spirit alone. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.